0: turn our eyes towards israel the northern tribe this half of the divided nation had no place of worship as jerusalem belonged to the southern kingdom judah jeroboam the first king of the north erected golden calves in two places bethel and gilgal jeroboam commissioned his own priests and held his own feasts for his people to attend and to worship in these two places There, the Israelites could present their offerings with leaven, proclaim freewill offerings, and even worship other gods. Israel was ushered into a golden age. Surely God was pleased with Israel, or so they thought. Until one day, a shepherd named Amos from a small city south of Jerusalem appeared with a word from the Lord. Good morning. I want to say hello to the folks out in uh, the 11 o'clock modern worship this morning as uh, rarely I'm on video anymore in that audience but I'm glad to say hello to you guys as well as well as those who are watching online today. We're uh, finishing up today this series of messages on Amos and on the prophets and uh, I want to show you first of all a graphic that kind of shows you the territory of where we've been. We're looking at prophets that prophesied to the people of Israel and Judah between the eighth and the fourth centuries. They predicted the fall of Israel, which happened in 721. The Syrians came and wiped out the nation. They predicted the fall of Judah in 587, 586, when Jerusalem was burned. They also led their prophecies on living in exile for 70 years, and following that 70 years, there was the restoration and the hope of the nation that occurred. Now, if you are like me, you might be wondering, why are the prophets so full of doom and gloom? But I want to share with you that context is everything. Notice the context. Think about it. And as we've gone full circle between all these, among these prophets, we're coming back to the one that really kind of got it started, among that got it started, before the fall of Israel, which is Amos. Now, if you were on the Titanic, and a messengers came telling you about what was occurring, would you want to hear something pleasant or would you want to hear the truth? In the same way, the prophets were speaking truth. The professional prophets, the professional priests, they weren't. They were saying what people wanted to hear. They were saying words of comfort when there were no no comfort that was coming. Amos was just a sheep herder in Judah, minding his own business, not a professional prophet. God said, I want you to go speak words for me. So if you wanna know whether someone's off their rocker or not and they dare to predict and say things as those prophets did, check their batting average. These guys were batting a thousand, but the prophets, friends, are not so much about predicting the future as they're about a call to change, to different outcomes, to a different way of living, and that's what we're talking about today when we come to the prophet Amos. And as we look at his words, we're not going to get down in the weeds. We're going to take the balcony view of things. We're going to see the thrust not only of his message, but the message of all these prophets that we've been looking at these last seven weeks. Now, before we do, I want to tell you about my 2006 Honda Accord. Very proud of this car. 146,000 miles and going strong. Susan, bless her heart went and got four new tires for that car. I guess we'll be driving it another 50,000 miles or so. But the one thing I don't like about the car is that it's got a blind spot. I mean, it's got the most pronounced blind spot of any vehicle I have ever driven. I've learned that when I change lanes, I've got to lean forward, and I've got to look carefully in the side mirror for a second or two to make sure another vehicle isn't coming. Friends, in the same way, as we get into this message, which is not exactly a casual one, I hope you're willing to lean forward with me and let Amos, the prophet, the God that we know in Jesus, speak a fresh word to us about our own personal blind spots as well as the blind spots of our nation. So Amos and the prophets, what are they about? They're whistleblowers. We don't like whistleblowers. Some whistleblowers are irresponsible. But these guys were whistleblowers in that they insisted that the same rules apply to everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what nation you are. Everyone's got to play by the same rules, fair enough? And so Amos, as he arrives on the scene, he talks about the nations. If we could show that graphic of the eight nations. And he gives these prolific words to all these different nations and cities representing different people. And his message is one and the same, and the message is this. The people of Damascus, the people of Gaza, the people of Tyre, the people of Edom, the people of Ammon, the people of Moab, the people of Judah, the people of Israel have sinned again and again, and again, and again. And I will not forget it. And Israel thought they were the golden age and the golden children. And they didn't play or have to play by the same rules. And if you looked at these different cities and nations listed, you would notice that the ones that are listed first are the enemies. You can almost see the people of Israel when Amos is saying this against Damascus, way to go Amos, get them God. But they kept moving. He kept moving closer and closer where he got to Judah, their buddy nation. And finally to Israel itself. If we were to, look at the nations today, and Amos was to speak to us, his prophecy might go something like this. For the people of Syria have sinned again, and I will not forget it. The people of Iran, the people of Afghanistan, the people of Iraq, the people of Moab. No, the people of Russia. The people of England, our buddies, the people of the United States of America. Now, you and I are living in a culture, in a time where we've created this protective skin over ourselves in such a way that we believe that there is no judgment or there's no responsibilities or we can continue to live as a people the way we choose to live. And the prophets say, it doesn't matter who you are, what nation you are, what status you are, the same rules apply to everyone. Now, the whistleblowers don't only just blow their whistle, but the prophets call a foul. They stand up for those that are violated. And in the book of Amos, what we're going to look at now in chapter 5 are some clear words about some of the foul play that he's pointing out to the people then. Listen and see if you think it parallels with us today. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut, for it is an evil time. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Listen to the hope. Listen to the word of the prophet calling the people to change. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Therefore, this is what the Lord the Lord God of heaven's armies says. There will be a crying in all the public squares and mourning in every street. Call for the farmers to weep with you and summon professional mourners to wail. Now there's a word here about each of us taking our own personal responsibility for our own actions as well as a word for the nation. Tony Thomason, a few weeks ago, spoke eloquently and very inspirationally at his wife's celebration of life service. Vicki lost her battle from a lung transplant fighting the good fight down in Texas. And the outcome wasn't what we had hoped. Tony spoke some amazing inspirational words, as did others. And one of the things I remember him talking about was about his grandson, seven-year-old, who saw his buddy's wallet stolen and he couldn't just stand there. He had to get involved and he wrestled that wallet down from the one that took it and got it back for his friend. Now friends, the best responsibility, the best accountability isn't from the top down or from the bottom up, it's peer responsibility. It's personal responsibility. It's people who cannot stand still and remain silent when a friend, a brother, a neighbor, or just anybody has their rights violated against them. Amos is saying enough already, but on the national front, it comes to a different level. Bishop Sheen was a religious leader of the 20th century. And Bishop Sheen spoke just before he died in 1979 at the National Prayer Breakfast. And as he spoke, he turned to the president and said, President and Mrs. Carter, you are sinners. The room got very quiet. People were chopping their jaws, their forks. But his point was, all of us are sinners. I wish someone close to the President of the United States would say, Mr. Trump, you have sinned. You are a sinner. I wish someone in the world of Hollywood would say to Johnny Depp or Madonna, Your words are irresponsible too. You can't say blow up the White House or assassinate the president. Those words are just as despicable as some of Donald Trump's tweets. I wish Democrats and Republicans and the media And all of us would recognize that we are sinners. And unless we change, we're going to do ourselves in. In the New Testament, it's interesting. It's not so much it seems that God is bringing havoc and destructive events. But the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans has an interesting phrase, and we're going to be looking at the book of Romans in in the fall, that God turned them over. God turned them over to their own actions. God turned them over to their own consequences. God turned them over. If there was ever a time that we needed to recognize our responsibilities, but more than anything, our sin and our need for genuine repentance. It's now. I wanna show you another graphic of four political movements that's occurred just in the last decade. In 2009 and 10, there was the emergence of the Tea Party movement. And a few years later, there was all the events associated with Black Lives Matter. And then there was the Trump phenomenon. And then the Women's March right after his inauguration. Leave that graphic up just a moment. Now, when you look at those graphics and you look at those movements, you would think, they they don't have anything in common. You talk about, edges and differences of the political spectrum but there is there are things in common because in every one of those movements there are people who feel like their rights have been violated that their voices have been unheard there is a crying out in the street just like amos says and depending upon the color of your skin depending upon your faith, depending upon your cultural background, your region, it's easy for us to listen to just some of the voices and disregard the others, but each of those movements have kernels of truth, but none of them, none of them is going to lead us to healing and justice for all. Nothing short of a major movement of God. That's what it's gonna take. Are you up for it? Do you want it? How badly? Do you want it? In 1831, there was a judge and a writer by the name of Alex de Tocteville. He came from France to explore the greatness of the United States of America. He wanted to know, what was it that made America truly great? He did an investigative tour when this nation was flourishing. And he wrote these words in his observation. I sought for the greatness of the United States in her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. I sought for it in her rich minds, her vast commerce, her public school systems, and her institutions of higher learning, and it was not there. I looked for it in her Democratic Congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. America is no longer great. I am a patriot. I love this country. I'm someone that has given 42 years to the ministry of the church. But not only is the country no longer great, but the church is no longer great. And it's time for us to believe and pray and get ready for a great awakening of God that must happen, that must happen in our land. A movement of God that none of us have ever seen in our lifetime. This morning, you were handed a little book. I asked you to do two things with this book, read it, and then begin to pray about what this book has to say. In the book, you're going to read about two great awakenings. The first one happened in New England, not yet. The first one happened in New England and also in Great Britain. Jonathan Edwards in New England. John Wesley and George Whitfield led these movements in England. They were great, mighty movements of God where people genuinely were sorry, not just for their sins, but for the injustices that were done. It wasn't just about personal holiness. It was about social holiness, child labor laws, abolitionists, other things that afflicted the social ills emerged. And there was a great mighty movement of God. The second great awakening happened in 1830 to 1845. It happened on many fronts. It happened in the old camp meetings in the frontiers of Kentucky where the uneducated, got to experience an amazing falling of the Holy Spirit. The learned, those who are more of the intellect, were also challenged on their level, as well as through the preaching of James Finney. But what happened was that crime went down significantly. And the problems and the afflictions of our country essentially went away. It happened when people mourned. It happened when people were willing to be somber. It happened when people's hearts reflected the heart of God. It happened when people began to travail in prayer. It can and it must happen again. some of the characteristics of sowing for a great awakening, if we can look at that slide. There's a spirit of urgency and audacity in the people who are a part of it. There's a brokenness and a sense of desperation. Instead of scolding the wicked, we pray for them. It's not about retaliating evil for evil. It's praying for your enemies, praying for their conversion. And prayer becomes less inhibited, more experimental, more united. It's not about praying with weird voices. or It's praying in normal tones, but praying with a sense of intensity. It's where you're willing for your reputation to be the first to go. Image and what people think. It's when the church joins God in agonizing over people, it's being bold and tenacious. And the thing about these movements and all the movements of God in human history is it sprung out at a time when it was least expected. When no one believed it could happen, but it never ever happened until there were many people who were travailing in prayer that it must happen. So that a spiritual geyser rose up and changed the very landscape of the land. So I invite you, friends, to be a part of the sowing for a great awakening. I end with These words on page 27. Those who are now crying are blessed. Jesus promised in Luke 621, because you will laugh with joy. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. That is his promise to travailing prayer. And he is too worthy. Awakening is too beautiful. And the need for it is too great to settle for anything less.